Well, when I was a um, young Christian, and I'm talking about level of maturity, not my age necessarily, because I became a Christian fairly late in life uh, to the standards of some of you. I was about in my early 20s, but I was part of a group called the Navigators. And um, in case you're not familiar with who the Navigators are, the Navigators is a group of people that disciples students on, on campuses of universities. So that's where I got to get my first induction, so to speak, in what it means to be a Christian. It was there that I met, uh, obviously, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in that group, I also got familiar with the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. Really, being part of a small group was instrumental to me. It was this where I learned, it was this where I got encouraged, it was at this place where I was directed, and it was at this place that I got corrected at times. It was also at this place where I learned to read my Bible. Now, I know that sounds strange to some of you because you think reading your Bible is just something that you do, but the reality is there are some guiding principles that really can help you get the most out of the Word of God, and I learned that in this place. Now, it was in this group of kids, really, that's what we were, that met together, um, that I met a guy named Dirk. Actually, his real name was Dirk, but it's a little hard to pronounce, so I'll just make it American for you. His name was Dirk. And Dirk was a little bit different than most of us. He was actually not a student. He was just a kid from around the neighborhood. And he was, his clothes were a different, little bit different, I would say shabby would be the right word. His demeanor was always friendly, but he was never really intimate. And most of the time, he actually seems to be anxious. And as the year progressed, and as he spent more time with his, his anxiety actually seemed to increase. And at a certain point, Dirk stopped coming to our group altogether. So after a couple of weeks, we reached out to Dirk, and after finally get a hold of him, he agreed to meet with some of us to get some coffee, and we had a conversation with him, and he said, I really can no longer be part of the group. He said, I am, and I'm going to use a Dutch saying down here, I feel like I've fallen between the ship and the shore. Greg always tells me, why don't you just use your sayings in Dutch? So he, feel, he fell between the wall and its ship. He says he was not really comfortable in the world that he came from, the world that he was raised in, the world that his family was part of. But he also did not really like coming to our group. Because he said when he came to our group, he was constantly reminded about how narrow the road really was, how different he was than us, and how far off he was compared to what God wanted him to do feeling ashamed, never really measuring up. He was unhappy in the world that he came from, but he felt a failure in ours. He was ashamed in both worlds for different reasons. Now, by a show of hands, I just want to ask you, has anybody in this group ever felt like Dirk or is feeling like Dirk right now? You see, the thing is, I think if we're truly honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we recognize ourselves 
in at least part of Dirk's story. Today, we will be starting a new series called Unashamed. Unashamed. And our hope is to tackle some of the issues that Dirk dealt with. Now, Dirk never came back to our group. I have no idea whatever happened to him and if he was ever able to settle some of the issues that he had with God and with his family. But for those of you who are here this morning and asking themselves things like, will I ever measure up to God's standard? Why do I continue to sin even if I don't want to? What does this do to my relationship with God? Why is my life still a mess? Will I ever find true joy and true peace? If you ever ask yourself questions like this, this series is for you. Now, before we start, I want to make one thing absolutely clear. And that is that my teaching on this subject is not based on the fact that I have answered all these questions and I have mastered them and that now somehow I am passing my wisdom on to you. I am not a black belt sensei, sensei teaching your rookies how it is done. Perhaps that is the case for Pastor James. I'm definitely the case for Pastor Aaron. But I just, I just want to let you know that I am in the same boat as you are. This is a journey that we will be taking together. The RCL, or the Revised Common Lectionary, which we have been using this year as our guide in regards to read, scripture reading, has brought us to the book of Romans. And that is where this series will be conducted from, from the book of Romans. And our hope is that at the end of this series you will find yourself at the same place where Paul found himself when he wrote this epistle. And which can be found in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. Where he writes, We are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, I realize that the book of Romans has developed a reputation as a difficult book. Difficult to read, perhaps even harder to understand. In the New Testament, in complexity, it's probably only surpassed by the book of Revelation. However, what I want you to know is that this book was primarily written for new Gentile believers because that is what the Roman church was at that, moment, at that time. You see, if Paul thought that pluralistic Gentile believers without a solid background in Judaism and the Old Testament could understand his writings, then I'm sure... Is that me? Okay. That's so good we. (laughs) 
But when you get past the initial intimidation of the book of Romans, you will find why there is a reason that this book is called Paul's greatest work. Sometimes even referred to as the cathedral of the Christian faith. In 386 AD, a guy by the name of Aurelius Augustine, we happen to know him predominantly by his last name, Augustine, received Jesus Christ as his Savior after reading a passage from the book of Romans. And he went on to become one of the church's most outstanding leaders and theologians. Thousand years later, Martin Luther, famous from the Reformation, wrote, Night and day I pondered Romans until I grasped its truth. I felt myself to be reborn. This passage of Paul became to me the gateway to heaven. Centuries later, a minister by the name of John Wesley, May 24, 1738, wrote about his studies in the book of Romans this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins. John Calvin said about this book, when one gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all most hidden treasures of Scripture. Since we are following the Revised Common Lectionary, we will pick up in chapter 6. But I would highly recommend you reading chapter 1 to 5 as well. You see, the book of Romans is as close to a systematic theology book as you will find in the Bible. That means that Paul builds on themes and on questions in a chronological order. So when you leave out the first five chapters, you will miss some important building blocks. But again, we will be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is what we will start off uh, on. Um, if you would be so kind to be standing for the reading of the Word of God, that would be great. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how will we, can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined in Christ, in Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. 
the word of the Lord. Death, sin, our old selves, slavery, the crucifixion, raisings from the dead. There is no shortage of theological concepts here. Would you agree? Your first reaction might be the same as my reaction. Overwhelming and confusing. But the best way to deal with this is just to follow the order of the text. Just to start and keep on building. A couple of weeks ago, Josefina and I got uh, to um, walk what is known by some hikers as the rim to rim. You walk from the north si south side of the Grand Canyon to the north side. Um, it's about 26 miles. It's 5,000 feet down, 6,000 feet up, and you do this in 110 degrees. And um, <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> it was lovely, but as people ask me, like, how did you do that? Um, I told them, it's actually not that hard. And I'm sure that marathon runners or boat builders use a similar strategy. When the task at hand seems to be pretty daunting, you just break it down in smaller units. Everybody can run a mile, right? 26, it's a different story. But if you just run 26 times one mile, you eventually get there. I think a lot of times it's the same with the, the Bible. It's just start. Just take it in smaller chunks. And as you build, eventually you will get there. The NIV, we just read from the NLT, but the NIV starts out this way with chapter 6. What then shall we say? What then shall we say? The NLT begins with, well, then, well, then. Both of them are, are, are put, pointing us back to chapter 5. You see, Paul is in the midst of making an argument that started in chapter 5, started actually in chapter 5, verse 12 to be uh, exact. And if you have a Bible, I would actually encourage you to flip back to chapter 5 so you can have some of the things I'm going to say make maybe a little bit more sense. But Paul is making, in the, in the, in, he's in the midst of making an argument that begins in chapter 5 and finds its accumulation in chapter 6. Now, in order to truly understand what is going on here, we don't only need to go back to chapter 5, we actually need to go back to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Because it's there that we read, and this is the argument that Paul makes, that God created the world. He created the world. And in his creation, he had put a garden, known as the Garden of Eden. The garden was full with trees, it was full with animals, and in that garden he had put the first human beings. There was an abundance of food, and God himself came down and walked with his people in this garden. Everything was perfect. Until. The shrewdest of animals, the serpent, started meddling with things. You see, in the middle of the garden, God had put two very special trees. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God had warned his people, Adam and Eve, not to touch nor to eat of that tree of good and evil. He told them if they would do so, they would surely die. Is that really what God said? 
asked the serpent. Is that really what God said? You won't die when you eat of the fruit. God just doesn't want you to be like him. God just doesn't want you to be like him. He does not want you to know good and evil. Now, why anybody would have a desire to know what evil is after you have all you have experienced is good goes beyond my comprehension. But the end result of the dialogue between Eve and the serpent is that Eve leads to, Eve chooses the enticement of the serpent over the warnings of God. And in doing so, something goes terribly wrong. The perfect relationship with God is destroyed. Sin and death have entered into creation. And all of humanity, all generations to follow, had to deal with this. Had to deal with the fact that they were now subjects of sin and death. Sin, Paul says in chapter 5, entered the world through one man and a woman. And no one can escape that. After retelling this story of the fall, Paul continues in chapter 5. And he tells the people, his audience, that the law which was given to Moses the Ten Commandments being the most famous part of it, and the rest laid out in other books. But the law was never intended to liberate us from sin. But rather, it was intended to expose our depravity. The depravity that has ruled us ever since that fall in the garden. Now, that is one depressing story. I don't think that is why you come to church this morning. It is a really depressing story if it would have ended here. The reality is that I got myself stuck at this very point for almost a year when I started to explore Christianity. I could not move past the point that death and sin ruled my life. Not because of my own doing, but because of one man. Now, please note that in that statement, there's actually two things that I had a beef with God about. You see, the first thing that I had a hard time accepting was the fact that sin and death ruled my life, that indeed I was a sinner being ruled by sin. Not just that sin would lead to death, not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. And besides the fact that this was the result of an act of two people long, long, long ago made it even sound more unfair. You see, I considered myself at that time a good person. Not a sinner. Definitely not evil. I mean, is there anybody here that feels the same way? That you are a decent person? I mean, you don't steal you don't use drugs, you work hard, you take care of your family, you don't shy away from your responsibilities, you help others, you even pay taxes. I mean, you are a good person. If that is you this morning, let me speak to you as one who has been there. If you think that in essence, deep down there, you are good, 
or at the very least neutral, let me burst your bubble. <laughs> let me be the bearer of bad news. And, and please don't shoot me for this, but you are a sinner. You are a sinner. Spiritually dead. If you don't understand or accept this, you will be absolutely unable to move on to the second part of Paul's argument. Because Paul makes the case that in the same way that death and sin entered into the world through one man, salvation and abundant life have entered the world through one man as well. You see, Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 18 and 19, and for those of you who have it in front of you, you can read along, he says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. See that current present tense, not past tense, right? Adam's sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteousness. Will be made righteous. You see, you can only truly accept Jesus when you know that you need a Savior. And you only need a Savior when you are convinced that you have fallen short of the glory of God. That you are a true heir of Adam. And that without intervention from God himself, you will remain spiritually dead. Not just in this world, but for all of eternity. Let's move to the good news. Because good news, it is, right? God's grace revealed in its fullest. He goes on in 521 to say this. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that is good news. Can I get an amen? Jeffrey's already ahead of that. I actually wrote it in here. Can I get an amen? <laughs> You see, greater than sin and death itself is God's grace to Jesus Christ. When sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So, so, Paul asked the hypothetical question. So, at the beginning of chapter 6, he says, if this grace is really so limitless, if it is so much greater than sin, should we then, after accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, continue to sin? So that God may show more and more of His wonderful grace? If justification is truly only based on faith, not human obedience to the law, he asks, then why obey at all? Now, before we look at how Paul answers this, his own hypothetical question, maybe it's helpful to first ask ourselves why he is asking that question in the first place. Because this is not the first time that he does this. 
in chapter 3, he actually asks very much the same question. 3, 7 to 8, he says, If my falsehood entices, of, enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, then why am I still condemned a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may result? Let us do evil so that good may result. Now, I think that there are two reasons why Paul asked this hypothetical question. The first thing, the first reason, I think, why he asked this question is because Paul takes grace very seriously. Paul takes grace very seriously. He takes it so seriously that he realizes that it's dangerous, that grace is actually really dangerous. Grace is kind of like giving your teenager the keys to your new sports car or handing your credit card to a stranger and telling him to have fun with it. I think it is because of this that so many churches teach adherence to the law. That's why so many people stress works and charity and obedience and doing what a Christian is supposed to do. Our own denomination has definitely wrestled with this over our history and we have not always gotten it right. You see, the reason why grace is so dangerous is because it is for free. And we realize, right, that when we get anything for free, we want more of it. We come to expect it. We demand it. My son is very good at demanding grace in our household. I can attest to that. <laughs> we, we abuse it. <laughs> and ultimately, we cheapen it. When I was 12 years old, my dad is from Morocco. We actually went to visit his family. And my grandparents kind of live in the middle of a little valley, which is surrounded by houses in which my, the rest of my family happens to live. So I have a lot of cousins in that area. And every afternoon, the boys and I would play soccer. Now, after we were done playing soccer for the day, one of the kids, one of my cousins, got to take the ball home with him. So he would take it home. Every day it would be another person. They would clean the ball, they would patch it up, they would store it safely so that the next day we could play again. If you walk into our house, we have, I don't even know how many we got, eight, nine, ten balls. I know that there is for sure one in the bushes, there's two over the fence, there is one in the garage in a place where it's not supposed to be, and I don't even know where the rest is. But this is what we often do with the grace of God. Rather than cherish it, we take it for granted and we cheapen it. You see, grace is a gift. It is not a credit card to pay for all your misdemeanors and felonies. It is a present that came at a terrible price. And Paul tells us not to abuse this gift, but to cherish it and to be thankful for it. The second reason why Paul brings this up this is actually the bigger part of his argument that he's making here, is because he said this is a flawed way of thinking. This is incorrect thinking. Yes, it's absolutely true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, something changes. Paul says that a person who died to sin can no longer live in it. 
verse 2. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may have new lives. Verse 4. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power on our lives. Verse 6. And you should consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive in God. Verse 11. You see, that is why Paul answers his question, should we continue to keep on sinning so that grace may become even bigger with a resounding no? That's his answer to his question, no. And he basically says that when you become a Christian, you cannot and you will not act and think like that anymore. When I came to the United States... Most of you know that I'm an expat from the Netherlands, but when I came to the United States, I think it was 97, um, I fell in love with Mexican food. Now, I had no, um, no previous notion of what Mexican food was, um, and I worked by myself, I lived by myself, I worked long days, so I went to my favorite Mexican restaurant, which was Taco Bell. <laughs> and I liked it. But then I came to California, and I married into a Hispanic family. And now, since I've been married to Josefina, I have not gone back to Taco Bell ever. <laughs> I mean, who wants chalupas when you can have mole, right? <laughs> you see, Paul is telling us, why would you settle for Taco Bell when you can have the real thing? Because going to Taco Bell might give you instant gratification. It might relieve your hunger for a little bit, but we all know how we feel after eating fast food. Guilty, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. You see, but Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. His comments go deeper than just acting or thinking like a Christian. It goes deeper than just doing Christian things. You see, Paul is not merely interested in conformity. He is not interested in acting out our Christian roles or behaving in a certain way. Romans 6, at its true core, is about identity. It is about being rather than doing. You see, the ultimate question of Romans 6, and I would argue, really, of most of Scripture, is, who are you? Who are you? What is your identity? And I mean, most of us will say, I am a father, I am a sales rep, I am a pastor, I am... And all of these are true. But if you strip all of these things away... If you look at who you truly are that can stand the test of time, then who are you? That is what Paul is asking. And he tells us that first we were dead in our sins. That was who we were. We were dead in our sins. But now after accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, now we are dead to sin. You see the difference? First we were dead in sin, now we are dead 
to sin. Sin has no longer a grip on us because our identity has been replaced by the identity of Jesus Christ. See, this dying to sin is illustrated by Paul in terms of baptism. Now, just to be sure, he uses baptism here as an illustration of salvation, not as a prerequisite of salvation. But Paul is using the image of baptism to illustrate what is happening with us when we surrender our lives to Jesus. He said, we died with Him. We were buried with Him, and we were raised to new life with Him. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we die to ourselves and surrender our all to Him. And in that process, something happens. I don't know how this works. I really don't. The only thing that I do know is that it works because the Bible is full of it. We become something new. We become someone else. Our very nature changes. You see, you might not even feel this. A jolt might not have hit you. Lightning might have not come from the sky. You might not have seen angels when this has happened to you, but something has changed. On October 26, 2003, I had the same legs, I walked in the same speed, I liked the same food, everything was the same, and yet it wasn't. Because on October 25, 2003, I got married to the most wonderful woman in the, wor in the world. Uh, sorry to disappoint you guys. But, <laughs> but something changed. Something was different. For um, those of you who have kids, and maybe some of you who don't, are familiar with these books. I love these books. This, the hero in this book is a fellow by the name of Punchinello. And Punchinello lives in a town called Wemmicksville. And Wemmicksville is a town that is full with wooden puppets, kind of like Pinocchios. And they just kind of go around their business. Now, the town is here, and up on the hill down there is a wood shop. And that's where Eli lives. Eli is a wood maker, and Eli is the one who made all the puppets down below. Now, this particular book, it's called You're Something Special, tells the story of what the, you are special, it tells the story of what the Wemmicks did all day long. They would go around town, and they would have stickers. They would have gray dots, and they would have golden stars. And as they walked around, and they would see somebody beautiful, they would give him a golden star. And if they saw something doing something really wonderful and be good at his job, golden star. Now, if they found another Wemmick that had some chipped wood or the paint was not all that good anymore, gray dot and gray dot. Now, what happened is over time, some of the Wemmicks got a lot of golden stars. Hey, some of them even got so many golden stars that people just gave them golden stars because something had to be good about them because they had so many golden stars, right? And the same thing happened as well for those who had, had uh, gray dots. Uh, the hero of the story, Punchinello, happened to fall in that category. Punchinello actually reminded me a little bit of Dirk. He felt not very good about himself, and as he continued through life, more and more gray dots appeared on himself. 
And then one day, Punchinello meets Lucia. And Lucia is unlike any other Wemmick in the town. Lucia does not have a whole lot of golden stars. Lucia does not have a whole lot of gray dots. Lucia has actually no stars whatsoever. Now, the interesting thing is, it's not that people don't try to give her stars. Some people thought, that's really cool, she has no stars, golden star. Fell right off. Other people thought, she must be a failure, she doesn't have any golden stars, gray dot. Fell right off. Punchinello thinks, that's how I want to be. That's how I want to be. So Lucia tells him, then he asks the question, how do I get like, why don't, why don't stickers stick to you? Just go ask Eli. Here's the interesting thing. Punchinello has not been to Eli in a very, very long time. So he makes his way up to the wood shop. He's really scared. He gets there, and he is about to leave when Eli calls out to him. And he sees Punchinello with his, um, with his dots, and he says, Punchinello, I'm so glad you're here. Now, now I actually want to just pick up. I'm going to read. Who thought you would come to church for children's literature, right? But... I'm going to read the last two pages because I think um, this, will, uh, this will kind of explain the whole concept that I'm trying to explain here. Because Eli, he asks a question. He says, the maker spoke softly because he, Punchinella has just asked, why don't stickers stick to Lucia? And then Eli responds, the maker spoke softly because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. You see, the stickers only stick when you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. Not sure I understand, Eli, smi Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time because you got a lot of marks. For now, just come and see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out of the door, you are special to me because I made you and I do not make mistakes. Punchinello did not stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. You see, Dirk never got past this. He lived in a world full of stickers. And most of them for, were gray dots. But Paul wants us to be like Lucia, where stickers don't stick because they don't matter to us. And they don't matter to us because you and I have gone to the woodshop, where our maker took us in, removed some of the dots, yes, even the golden stars, and he refarnished us with the blood of Jesus Christ and made us new. 
You see, what others think does not matter. I would even go as far as to say as what you think of yourself ultimately does not matter. No matter how powerful the voices in your head are, no matter what the people around are you saying, when we are making our way up to Eli's shop, and Eli, by the way, means my God, when we join Christ in his death, when we are being buried with him, when God himself, by his glorious power, raises us from the dead, we have new lives. We are different. So this morning, I just want to leave you with a challenge. For those of you who never died with Christ, I want to invite you to explore what that means what deep, going deeper really means. There is no appointment that Pastor James or Pastor Aaron or myself rather make than to take some time with you and explore who you are and who Jesus is to you. For those of you who feel like they're failing at the Christian life, who are unable to break sin sinful habits, ashamed of the things that you are doing or have done, ultimately, these are nothing more but gray dots in your life. Go to the woodshop. Go to Eli. Go to God. Even if you've gotten so far as putting stickers on yourself, some of us tend to do that. You see, Eli, or God, does not just take stickers off. Did you realize that? Did you hear what Max Lucado wrote? That's not what God does. He doesn't just constantly say, come up to the shop every night, I'll take the stickers off, off you go. So they can put new ones on you. That's not how God works. He makes you new. He gives you a new nature. He changes you so that stickers don't stick anymore. Once you were dead in sin, and now you are dead to sin. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I want to ask you for forgiveness because this is such a thing that we get so often wrong. We are so good, even in the church, to put stickers on each other. You're a great tither. You're a wonderful worship leader. Oh, you pray so well. Golden stars, we love them as much as the world does, Lord. You didn't come enough. You are not involved enough. You sin too much. Gray dots over and over. Lord, what if we are a church that starts with grace rather than go back to default of sin. Yes, sin is there. We inherited it. We, we, we got it from Adam. This is who we fundamentally are before we meet your son, Jesus Christ. But after that, what a wonderful thing, Lord. So I want to pray for those here in this room who have never died with Christ, who have never made that decision, Lord. Will you speak to them? Will you let them know how much better a life looks like that is being raised in your grace? 
after we have gone under, we were raised again. For many, that might have felt like nothing spectacularly happened. From our perspective, perhaps that is the case. From the perspective of our co-workers and our spouses, that might be the case. But from your perspective, God, you see something radically different. Lord, help us to feel comfortable in that identity. Help us to not only know that we are different people now, but to really have that engraved on our hearts. Lord, grace is a wonderful thing. We don't want to abuse it, but we are very thankful for the fact that it's there. There's one part that, G, that, that Paul has not even worked on yet, but grace is not just for people at the beginning stages of their lives with you. Grace is not just there for the forgiveness of sins. Grace is there also to enable a, to live a life of holiness, and that is what we are aspiring to as well, Lord. So, Father, by means of your Holy Spirit, by means of your grace, will you help us to become more and more like the people that you have created us to be? Lord, we, uh, there is no place for stickers in this church, Lord. I want to ask you to be a place full of Lucias and Poncinellos, that we will know that we are truly special because you have made us and you don't make mistakes. Lord, may we be finding comfort and peace in that very fact, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.